0: Welcome to Layers of Film, the show where mediocre people discuss masterful films the first Monday of each month. I am your host, Austin Killian, joined by my co-host, Big T. Big T, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Austin. It is a great time of
1: year. The leaves are turning, and I can watch tons of movies and TV shows and not feel guilty
0: about it, so it's great. Oh, speaking of TV shows, I, I texted you a little bit, and I feel like everyone's texting each other about it, at least over the past month. Squid Game. So that came out at the time that we're recording this. And Squid Game is a Korean show if you haven't heard about it yet. It is it is amazing. It's basically a spin-off of or like kind of kind of their own spin on Hunger Games type of stuff and just playing like these children's games to a bunch of people who owe a lot of debt to a bunch of various things or whatever and if they win the game or the whole thing there's like 8 games and if they win the whole thing then they get like millions of millions upon millions of of money to pay off their debt. And uh it's so like the premise is so dumb in a way, but at the same time it is it's a brilliant show. Have you watched it yet? Yeah, we just finished it yesterday. <gasps> yes, I didn't think you would have watched it by now. I'm so excited. No, we did. So we'll do a quick maybe we should start making this a segment like oh, TV talk for a second. But dude, okay, what did you think about it? It was great. I had actually
1: already read up a lot of the stuff that happens because I wasn't really sure if I was going to watch it or not. So I just read a lot of the stuff. So I knew pretty much all of the like major plot points going into it, but my wife didn't. But it was good. I really enjoyed it. I Did you watch it subbed or dubbed? We actually did both. So oh. we watched the first few, I think the first three or four episodes dubbed, and then we switched to just the subs.
0: Okay. The dub is definitely an experience. <laughs> I've heard nothing but horrible things about the dub version. It's like horribly acted or voice acted. Yeah, it's content wise. It's pretty accurate, but um,
1: the voice acting is pretty annoying.
0: I started watching it dubbed and I feel like at the very beginning when they're just There's like the voiceover and there's a bunch of shots or whatever. I I don't know exactly who it's supposed to be voicing because I switched over to subbed quickly after that intro sequence. I thought it was fine. And then I was just like, oh, you know what? I don't think people are watching this dubbed. I think people are mainly watching the sub, So I'm going to go ahead and switch over to that. And at first, like I I usually hate watching subtitles, you know, because I want to watch it. I, I really am in. There's a lot of people I think that are watching movies and stuff for the plot you know, and different story beats and questions that they want answered and stuff like that. And for me, I'm really looking at the performances, listening to the music, you know, the overall product and and uh, the, the cinematography and everything like that for me. And so I usually hate watching things subbed because I don't want to miss any of that stuff. But I was really surprised. I was so enthralled in everything and the performances, even though I didn't understand technically what they were saying, were just... Perfect. They were amazing. Well, well done on all fronts, and and I was so enthralled in it that I was somehow able to, I was able to finally get my brain to figure out how to do both at the same time. I couldn't believe it. It's, it knocked me off my feet, man. I couldn't believe how great this show was. Wait, so you guys liked it though, right? Yeah, we both really liked it. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, my wife, she was like, we can't watch this too late because if we do, I won't stop thinking about it when I go to bed.
0: Oh, oh! I can't even. I yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I, we should like linger on this too much because this is a film show. But um, yeah, if you haven't seen Squid Game yet, watch it. Watch it subbed. It's great. And then stay tuned for our spinoff podcast where we just talk
1: about Squid Game.
0: <laughs> just Squid Game. That's it. We'll just keep rewatching it over and over and over again and see what kind of things we can pick apart from it each time. Exactly. That actually sounds interesting. Anyway um and also a bad idea at the same time but anything else happened in the past month or i guess few weeks nothing too exciting no just living life and yeah just living life watching squid game yep yeah i i still haven't gone to trader joe's what a slacker probably won't end up happening we'll see Maybe Thanksgiving, maybe that'll be a good Thanksgiving thing to do too. It sounds like most of the things that you were talking about is probably more Thanksgiving centric anyway. So yeah, they have great fall stuff. I mean, I like all of the stuff that they have, but their fall stuff is definitely all their fall products are great. Heck yeah. All right. Well, someday I don't like, we'll have to make a trip out there to do it. (laughs) Whenever you need to treat yourself, just go to Trader (laughs) Joe's. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this past month, it was pretty good. Didn't go to Trader Joe's, but celebrated my sixth year anniversary with my wife. Congratulations. Yeah, we watched uh, we watched the new James Bond film. Was it good? Yeah, it's Daniel Craig's last film, and I thought that they did a really good job tying a bow on it. There were a couple of things that I didn't really care for about it, and I feel like Daniel Craig, in general, just maybe he took too long of a break in between James Bond films because he did not seem like James Bond to me. Interesting. I don't know because he did. He went off and did that Ryan Johnson film. Crap, what's it called? Knives Out. Yeah. Oh, that that film. We should cover that film for sure. I love Knives Out. It's one of the. I couldn't believe it because Star Wars Episode Eight sucked to me. I really hated that movie. Except except there's a couple of things that were really awesome about it. But um, I couldn't I couldn't believe how how oh, much I hated that film and then I see Knives Out kind of with my arms crossed just like oh I don't, I don't know about this one you know it's it's Ryan Johnson we'll see but people were talking about it so I'm like I'll give it a shot and you yeah, know brilliant film I'm so excited for the next few films that he's gonna do for Knives Out yeah I Knives Out I actually didn't like it that much when I first saw it
1: really but I watched it a second time and I really really enjoyed it and I feel like Knives Out is the type of movie that I love just like a murder mystery that has yeah. some comedy in it and it's kind of dark humor mm-hmm. i mean as you can tell i'm sure from ready or not like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll get into that <laughs> there's definitely some thematic overlaps <laughs> there but uh yeah that if you like knives out um you should watch a simple favor if you haven't ever oh. seen it. a simple favor is is really
0: good as well is that when ryan reynolds wife what's her name Blake Lively. Is that the okay? Yep, Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. Or Anna Kendrick. That's right. Yeah, it's great though. That's also a really good one. I enjoyed. Interesting. That. Yeah, maybe we'll cover it. I'll have to check that one out. I didn't realize that that was like a murder mystery type of thing. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Oh, the the trailers didn't do it like a good job explaining it. Then. Yeah, when you go into that movie,
1: when I I remember when I went to go watch it, I was like, I literally have no idea what this is about, but. We I went to go see it because I had movie pass at the time and I was like it's a free movie whatever, right? And I I loved it so it's definitely a good movie to go into that you don't know what you are looking at like it's a good movie when when you don't know what to expect yeah wow. Like if you go in kind of blind, it's good. All
0: right. All right. Then I yeah. won't I won't look up anything on it and I'll I'll give it a chance. I don't know, is it streaming on anything right now? I don't know. Maybe we can cover it on one of our episodes. That's true. If you you're you've already chosen the next movie, so Yeah. Speaking of dubs and subs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that at the very end. A little teaser there for the audience. Yeah. But <laughs> oh, I did want to say this about I, I just feel like there's not enough murder mysteries. There's there's really not that many at all. And and I feel like some of them not enough well done ones. Yeah. Some of them aren't even that well done. Like you got Clue, which is like the OG. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily the OG, but that's the one that everyone has most likely seen. It's so good. And so funny. It's awesome. But um and then there's this one and then I can't even think of any others off the top of my head. I I think there's Orient Express, but I don't think anyone really liked that one either. I just like funny murder mysteries, like that have some wit to them, you know? Those are the best ones. Yes. They kind of have to. That's kind of the way that they are. I feel like, again, going back to Clue, like that's just like you just kind of follow that formula. And I think they really set the example. And this is just kind of the way it's going to be done from now on. Only Murders in the Building on Hulu is a TV
1: series that's kind of that same. It's a murder mystery, it has Steve Martin in it. Uh, selena gomez and martin short what um so it's a good cast yeah uh that's it's kind of the same thing it's uh a murder mystery it's also kind of funny and stuff so it just finished up its last episode last week
0: oh what the heck so that's a good that's a good series too okay i'll check that one out too i didn't even know yeah and oh yeah you reminded me as, as far as tv shows go I, or no not tv shows but on netflix i think there was an adam sandler murder mystery with jennifer Aniston. that one sucked that one was horrible yeah it It was was not good good.
1: i just watched dune today
0: dude okay so i was gonna i i so i went to watch venom which i wasn't really that excited about in the first place that movie blows but whatever (laughs) like i don't know i don't know what i was expecting but that movie was terrible but i was going with my brother jeremy and he's he talked to you and said that uh, you had watched dune and he already told me apparently you didn't like it wait i haven't told jeremy that i watched
1: dune i literally just watched it like Six hours ago. Oh, wait, what? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Jeremy said me? I had watched it? (laughs) Yeah. He specifically called your name out. And he said that you had watched it and you didn't like it and you thought it was too long. Are you sure you're referring to the right person? Yeah. Friend. Mutual friend. No, I mean, was he talking about me? Oh, no, he was 100%. He called you out by your last name and everything. I literally watched it like this afternoon what the heck dude or did you watch the original one did he think you were talking about dune yeah the one from 1984 nope never i've never i didn't even know there
1: was an original one haven't read the book
0: oh my gosh when did
1: you wait when did you talk to jeremy he's from
0: the future dude he could time travel i didn't know this i talked to him we went and watched venom yesterday last night maybe he was talking about ethan that's
1: incredible um no but I th- I thought it was a pretty good movie. Um I don't know anything about the
0: Dune universe but um I thought it was pretty interesting. He must have been talking about Ethan because I could see him saying that he thought it was too long.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an Ethan thing to say. But no, I I just watched it this afternoon with a friend. Okay. But I thought it was interesting. I wish that they had explored some of the the voice, the Benny Jezeret or whatever it's called, people a little bit more. I haven't
0: watched the movie yet. Yeah, but it's pretty good. It's interesting. I don't know if it's worth two and a half hours, but it's, it's you know, it's good. I can't remember the director's names, like Dennis Villeneuve or something like that. He made Blade Runner 2049. Gotcha. Great film, by the way. The cinematography is out of this world. I feel like the ending was a little whatever, but... Yeah, so I, that's why I'm really excited to watch Dune, because I really loved Blade Runner. And I think he also made a movie called Prisoners, which is on my list. Prisoners is an amazing film. And uh, anyway, or maybe the cine- cinematography, the same, maybe it was the same director of photography on, on Prisoners. Is Prisoners with Hugh Jackman? Yeah, and Jake Gyllenhaal.
1: Yep, I've seen that too. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's good. It's pretty dark. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, actually, let me cross over to something um paul dano he plays one of the characters in prisoners he's in the new batman film as the riddler Mm -hmm. i just wanted to plug this real quick the batman the new batman trailer came out i'm so excited for this film i'm so excited i think march 4th is when it comes out okay it looks so good and I know that you wanted to cover all of the Batman. That was that seemed to be a big drive for you when we were thinking about this podcast. Is you wanted to just go through each Batman film?
1: Yeah, just literally, we'll just watch every Batman. That'll be our second spinoff podcast. It's <laughs> just about Batman, the
0: Batcast. Um, dude, <laughs> there's probably already a podcast named Batcast, but friggin', the, I mean, okay. Here's what I'll say about the second trailer. They jam packed it. It's a really great trailer to show like all the action and all the cool stuff that you're gonna be seeing in the film. Not as good as the first trailer. The first trailer is a masterpiece to me. Very art driven, I think. Just, I don't know, just really paying attention to all the small different things and establishing kind of the tone of what the film is going to be. And then this, this second trailer was really like, yeah, I'm so excited for Batman. Boom, 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 boom. Hit you with a bunch of imagery and fighting stuff. And anyway, check it out. It's great. Cool. I'll have to check it out. I don't think I've seen it. Super sidetracked, but I just had to talk about a couple of these things. Because, uh, yeah, I want Hey,
1: what's a, what's a movie podcast if we don't talk about unrelated movies, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: sure. Why not? But let's get into the movie that we're covering this week. Uh, Big T, you are the one that chose it. And it is... Um, oh, my gosh. Sorry. What is it called? <laughs> Ready or not, ready or not. Sorry, maybe I should put that in the film introduction from now on, <laughs> so I don't forget. But yeah, it's ready or not. Uh, the release date was August twenty first, twenty nineteen. Set in Ontario, Canada, I think it was. There was kind of con- contradictory, like I don't know, stuff online saying exactly where it took place. But I, I think it's always interesting to see the setting of the film. And then the, if you haven't seen it yet, the movie synopsis is. A Bride's Wedding Night takes a sinister turn when her eccentric new (laughs) in-laws, eccentric, force her to take part in a terrifying game. Directed by a couple of directors, I guess, Matt Bettinelli-Alpin and Tyler Gillette. (laughs) I don't know. They're probably like French Canadians, so I'm sure that's not how you pronounce any of this, but uh, also written by Guy Busick and R. Christopher Murphy, composed by Brian Tyler, So the big actors, I guess, not really any of them are that big, I would say. I don't think there's really, is there any? Well, I guess I would consider um, Adam Brody a big actor, but usually I would just name some of the standout actors and characters, but pretty much everyone plays an equal part in this film, so I'll go ahead and list them all out. So Samara Weaving plays Grace, Adam Brody plays Daniel, Mark O'Brien plays Alex, Henry Cerny... Uh, plays Tony. Andy McDowell. Oh, yeah. She's in uh, Groundhog's Day. Uh, she plays Becky. Melanie Scrofano plays Emily. Christian Brune plays Fitch. Elise Levesque plays Charity. Nikki Quadani <laughs> plays Aunt Helene. And John Ralston plays Stevens, the butler. Uh, good stuff. It's. We'll get into it. The budget it was for about $6 million. And the box office drawing was $57.6 million. That's pretty good. That's actually I was surprised to see how much money it made. I assume that it would have maybe yeah. made its money back or doubled it <laughs> with twelve million, but it it made a pretty modest, modest amount. But I think for a budget of six million, that's pretty good. And you can watch it uh, pretty much nowhere. It's not really streaming. Could you find it streaming anywhere? I had to. I just bought it. Yeah, I bought it too. So it was like eight bucks. Not bad. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty pretty low price. But yeah, you could either rent it for like four bucks, or you could buy it for like eight bucks. So I just bought it. Why not? Um, since since Big T was saying that it's a movie you watches every year, I might as well buy it because I'm gonna be okay. watching it every year.
1: To be fair. <laughs> I've, it came out in 2019. I watched it for the first time last year, and this is the second year I've watched it. But
0: Then why would you...
1: <laughs> it will be something...
0: Why would you say, oh, I, we watch it every single year for Halloween. It sounds like you've been watching it for the past five years, dude. <laughs> well, it came out in 2019, so... I, I Yeah, I realized that afterwards. I'm like, yeah. oh, this is a really new movie.
1: <laughs> no, this will be a movie that I watch every year for Halloween.
0: Okay, maybe that's what you said and I I misheard or something. I usually do that. I don't know. I also
1: think uh, if I'm not mistaken it was one of the production companies like biggest movies at the time or something like that in regards to oh. money or marketing. I don't remember but Oh. There was some sort of record it set, I think, but oh, I cool. probably should have
0: done more research
1: on that. But I didn't.
0: Okay. <laughs> so I've, I've been doing a lot of talking, intro in the movie, and since I'm not the one that... Or since I hadn't seen it before, normally with you, I would just flip it back to you to see what you thought of the movie, but since I've been talking so much, I'm going to ask you, what in your mind makes this movie... And again, if you haven't seen this film, go ahead and go watch it before you listen to the podcast unless you don't really care, but what in your mind makes this movie so masterful? What doesn't make this movie masterful? <laughs> <laughs> I love the
1: acting... I love the dialogue, I love the messages, I love the complete overuse and camp use of blood, just mm. everything is so good, so good about this movie. I just, I really want to know what you think and what your kind of reaction to it was, I'm very
0: curious. Okay, so here's <laughs> here's here's my opinion on the film, it is not a movie that I feel like I need to see every year, but... If it ever crosses my mind to watch it again, I think there are a lot of things that you can really take from it and I I do think that the performances are very well done. I think for me the person or the the perfect description of this film is that it is the most masterful 7 out of 10 movie you've ever seen in your entire <laughs> life. Okay? And I feel like that's not necessarily a bad thing because there are plenty of movies that are seven out of tens that are like, yeah, like I watch this anytime, any day. And for this, for you, that, that is this movie, right? Or maybe not necessarily of day, but every year for me, that's like, like the movie Good Burger. I think I made you watch that one time and you hated it. it's like an old Nickelodeon film, but, um, that movie with Keenan and Kel, it's, it's masterful to me. And that is, they set out to make the one of the best seven out of 10 films ever. And that's, that's what it is to me. You could say that with, I mean, I guess kind of another just like small network or whatever, like Nickelodeon Disney thing, um, type of movie, but Brink also, that's like one of the like quintessential, like kids, Disney channel, original movies ever. And that, that movie is great to me as well. Like I can watch that any day, any time. I love that movie, and that is a perfect seven out of ten experience. I would—I mean, not as big of a budget, obviously. <laughs> they probably didn't get a $6 billion dollar budget, but this this movie, in my opinion, like I would say that the directors and everyone who was a part of this movie—they all huddled up together and say, and, and they were basically saying, "Let's make the best seven out of ten film anyone has ever seen." I cannot imagine that they set out to like break a. Apparently, they did break a record. I guess according to you, but like I doubt that they went into it thinking like, "Oh, this is going to be a Christopher Nolan, you know, type of film. Like everyone's going to be talking about this for years." I've never heard about this movie until you said it. So, (laughs) so I, I doubt that they had that expectation when they went into it. Yeah, I would agree with that. But again, having said that. Like, there are movies that are 7 out of 10s because they were trying to do something great, but the execution was so poor that it just didn't make it to 8 or 9 out of 10, if you want to go by a rating system like that. And and that's the difference, right? These, these people made, like, they set out to do it, and they did it perfectly. Whereas other people, they get, they get knocked down to a 7 out of 10 because they, like Venom, for example, like I doubt that they set out to make a crappy movie, but that movie sucks to me. <laughs> no offense. Sorry. And I was actually really bummed out about that because Andy Circus directed it. And Andy Circus obviously he did Gollum. He played Gollum and he was in King Kong. He's like the best mocap kind of person out there. And I was really pulling for it to be a great film. And honestly, watching that, watching that film, I think that they had to cut out a lot of stuff because there's a few things where I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, What what led to this conversation? So I think that's what dropped that down to a 7 out of 10. So that's an example of a movie where they probably set out to make something great and it ended up being garbage. Whereas this one, A plus for a 7 out of 10 effort. (laughs) That's so funny. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I can see that. I think that
1: this genre and this type of movie is one that can't take itself too seriously mm-hmm. and so I think that that's like a fair assessment right that it's sort of like we're gonna make this movie it's gonna be funny but it's also gonna be like really camp and also just sort of fun yeah like definitely um, I don't think I mean I would agree with you I don't think that they're trying to come out and make the next Christopher Nolan movie I think they're, they're just like we have this idea it's gonna be really fun mm-hmm. let's like go for it and yeah, I just love it, and I think that I'm excited to discuss some of the themes and and things like that with you as well, because I, I love a lot of the messaging that they have, and uh, there are so many good scenes in this movie, too.
0: Yeah, and I, and I was going into this movie thinking, like, oh, I'm sure there's a ton of themes that he was able to pull from it. For me, I was only able to pick out a couple. I was trying so hard, and mostly, I think usually at the end I write down like an underlying message that I pulled out or maybe a couple and the two that I wrote down was money is the root of all evil like a, a just kind of a you know an old saying that everyone's been hearing for their entire lives money is the root of all evil and that's I, I feel like that's pretty obvious in this film you know because <laughs> they're 100% evil even when Grace like escapes and tries to stop that that car <laughs> its that's one of my funny moments as well tries to stop that car and clearly like she's she's got blood all over herself like her wedding dress is ripped to shreds someone's obviously out to kill her and then <laughs> I don't remember what the people in the car say you don't even see their faces they just say something horrible to her and then they just drive off immediately and that's 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 where it really gets funny for me it, uh, with Grace is because she just starts ripping into them and just yelling like you mother effing f eff, like you know just <laughs> just like every all of the emotions that she's been feeling that entire night uh, all led up or just all was released right in that moment towards those rich people that just left her to die basically. But um, so yeah, even even with that car, like they're they're also evil in a way. Like they didn't even care. And then another thing that I wrote down, which isn't really profound in any way. I just kind of quickly wrote it down. The rich only care about money. And, and that's really obvious because they're all willing to like kill people if they have to, to make sure that they don't lose their, what is it, what is it that they, the, their dominion? Yeah. I think is how they like to, and I actually wanted to ask you about that. Like, why do you think that instead of being known as an empire, they like being called a dominion? I don't know. I mean, maybe empires collapse and they're hoping to avoid that. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was just curious because I didn't even really know exactly what Dominion meant per se, but it's... it's. Uh, oh, let me look it up. Dominions mean sovereignty or control. I feel like they went for that for a specific purpose of saying Dominion rather than empire or something like that, because that's kind of the obvious choice is to call yourself an empire of board games or whatever. I think Dominion's a little bit more sinister. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It comes across as like a little bit more like
1: uh, a dictator or like a ruthless ruler, whereas like an empire, you know, is like, oh, they built this great empire type thing. Yeah. So I just Dominion comes across as more sinister to me.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It sounds more sinister and the, you know, the whole dictatorship type of thing that you just brought up that plays into control. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a part of the meaning. Which is a big theme. A huge theme of this movie. Uh, yeah, especially because they are losing control constantly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Throughout the entirety of the film. And something that was really interesting to me as well is they are losing control and they blame all of it on her. When in reality, she only killed one family member. Only one family member. And anyone else who died, like the maids, every single one of them died. <laughs> um it was all because of... I think two of them were because of Emily. I can't remember. She crushes the other one in the dumbwaiter. Well, she didn't even do anything. The dumbwaiter just... Yeah, I think she pulls the the trigger. I think she
1: pulls the handle on the dumbwaiter. Oh, did she? But I don't think she meant for it to kill her. I think she was trying to close it so that the maid would stop talking.
0: No, actually, I, or I, maybe I did miss see it, but... I I thought that the maid was saying she's here, and then she pressed the button herself. I don't I don't remember to try to hide or whatever, so that they wouldn't accidentally kill her because obviously no one's safe. <laughs> but yeah, maybe maybe it was Grace's hand. I have no idea. I didn't bother figuring out the maids' names or anything. Yeah, I don't remember
1: any of them. But I think it's interesting that you said one of the messages was like money is the root of all evil. Because I definitely agree with you. The family is clearly evil right they're like <laughs> literally willing to kill this lady yeah. but one thing i love about this movie is like how normal and mundane the family is because a lot of times when you get like satan worshippers in movies They're like really mysterious and they like know what's going on and they're like really tricky and all this stuff. But you see this family, they have no idea what they're doing. Like (laughs) Emily shoots two people in the face on accident. The dad is clearly spiraling throughout the whole thing. Fitch is literally on the toilet Googling how to use a crossbow. Like (laughs) I just love that like the family is so mundane, but they're... Doing like these really evil and unspeakable things. And I thought that that added so much more like nuance to the movie because it's almost as if just like, yeah, this is like a random rich person. Like this is really what they're doing. You know, they seem totally normal, but then like lock the door, close the blinds and they're just doing this like super messed up stuff behind closed doors and stuff. So I just loved how mundane a lot of the family members come out to be.
0: Yeah, oh, I mean it kind of makes sense because they only have to do this when someone new joins the family. So obviously they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, and, and not even every time someone new joins the family, right? Oh, wait, what? Because
1: like when Charity and Fitch marry in, they even say like she's like, oh, we had to play chess, and then Fitch is like, oh, oh. we played old maids. So it's not every family member yeah. that they have to hunt down, right? Yeah, right, right. It's just
0: like certain ones. That's something that I wanted to ask you. Okay, so. At least in the film, there were only, well, okay, you see a bunch of dead bodies at one point in the film, and I'm not entirely sure who all the dead bodies are, but Aunt Helene says, I think, something to Becky, the mom, or maybe even Tony, I I can't remember who she's talking to in the film, saying something about how she and Alex are somewhat similar because the people that they married got hide and seek. And it sounded like those are the only two that have gotten hide-and-seek, at least in a very long time. And so I kind of wanted to ask you, why do you think that those two got hide-and-seek? I don't
1: know. I mean, we don't know very much about Helene's husband, right? So we don't get a lot of backstory. I mean, we don't get any backstory for him. But I don't know. I mean, maybe just... I think the mom says something to Grace, like, I see me in you, I think right. is what she says, or something along those lines, so I'm not really sure. I also wonder if part of it is, like, LaBelle just knows that these people are going to be the ones that kind of cause the most trouble and are the most fun to sort of watch Be Hunted, so I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was that was something that I was really curious. I was hoping that you would have the answer, since this is one of your favorite movies, but <laughs> I was... I was Makes for a great movie, I don't know. <laughs> I was just trying to figure out exactly why it was them. And one of the comparisons to draw between Alex and Aunt Helene are, are that they truly loved these people, right? Like Alex truly loves Grace, and Aunt Helene truly loved whoever it was that she was going to marry. Because she says that, like, oh, I had to watch the only love of my life die. And I, I'm i just kind of wondering what the motive is behind uh LeBeau basically choosing them for hide and seek why would he choose the people's only true love of their life to do hide and seek unless it's more randomized i don't know yeah i mean i don't know i think i mean this is a whole
1: concept that i want to explore too like this concept of love especially the love that alex has for grace because yeah. i i'm not really sure he does love her in like mm-hmm. the sense that people would normally think a spouse loves another spouse but um I mean, maybe that's what it is. Maybe LaBelle knows that these people actually love their spouse, whereas we see some very clear hostility, for example, from Daniel to charity. Um, We don't get a whole lot of the relationship between Fitch and Emily, but I think that that is a message in and of itself, right? That they're pretty disconnected from each other. So I don't know. But yeah, maybe it's the fact that LaBelle knows that they love each other and he doesn't
0: like that. I don't know. Either he doesn't like that or he doesn't respect the family whatsoever. I feel like, how could you, right? And I feel like he's trying to cause them pain in a way. And this is how I took it. Because at the very end of the film, when everyone explodes, it's awesome. That's a great sequence, by the way. But when everyone explodes, the like the fireplace behind the chair that's reserved for him kind of flares up. And then you see LaBelle kind of give a nod to Grace at the very end. And then she says, uh, she says F or whatever, you know, the F word at the very end, like, whoa, it was true. That's crazy. You know? And, um, and I feel like it was almost a nod out of respect, like, nice, dude. Like, I can't believe you did that. (laughs) You killed everyone. Good job. Impressive. Yeah. Either it was out of respect for how she even was able to last until the sunrise, or maybe he was kind of hoping that that would happen to the family. I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Or maybe it's the fact that like, because I think it's pretty clear that if, Grace had been accepted into this family and she learned about this, she wouldn't have been cool with it, right? Whereas oh, yeah. Fitch and Charity and uh, the mom Becky, I think is her name, right? Yeah. She, they're all totally fine with it. But we, I think we clearly see that Grace would not be partaking in this. And maybe that's the same with uh, Helene's husband. Maybe he would have been the same, like, I'm not going to be part of this. And we see throughout that it's really important for this family that they all participate in this really inhumane activity together. So maybe that's part of it as well. I don't know.
0: No, yeah. And and something that I wanted to talk about with that as well, because, because of the only true two loves... Well, I guess Tony, I think, truly loved Becky. I think they really did love each other. You could see Becky wasn't really cool with it, but she's too afraid to die, so it's too late. That's I think fear is an underlying thing as well. Like everyone fears losing their lives and their money, which is why but you could see with a bunch of them actually no, sorry, let me back up just before I lose the point of what I was because I always do this. I always go off on a weird random tangent. But um the only Yeah, there's the only two true loves with Aunt Helene's dead husband and then Grace. And I feel like you could tell with Emily and Fitch, there's not really anything actually there. They have two kids, but she's constantly... And a lot of cocaine. Yeah, exactly. She's constantly using cocaine and other drugs. Like, I don't know what pills she was popping later on in the film, but she's constantly using drugs. So, obviously, I don't think... I mean, maybe she was always an addict, but she's... In my opinion, I think that was to show that she's not really that happy with how things are in her life. And I mean, for good reason, she's probably killed a lot of people, <laughs> but, but, and also Fitch is an a-hole. Like he's, he's totally, he's got the hugest, well, okay. He's kind of a sociopath in a way. Like there's just this total disassociation with conscience, you know, like behave, like having a conscience at all he just doesn't really care. And he's the first one at the very end like, well, what are we going to do with her? Like, we're not dead, but we still got to kill her. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't—he doesn't have any sanctity for life or anything. I don't—I don't even. He just seems like a really terrible human being. I don't know why she chose him in the first place. He's kind of charismatic in a way when he introduces himself to Grace in the first place. Like he seems like a like a chill dude, but also kind of stupid at the same time. And everyone says that like he's a total waste of space. (laughs) Like no one respects him whatsoever. He's in the family because he got the game. I've never liked you, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and then and then obviously with Daniel and Charity, Daniel hates her. And so there's this question in me like did Emily and Daniel choose people that weren't even that good to begin with because because they didn't want to bring good people into this messed up family? And does that make Alex the worst one out of all of them for actually bringing a good person into the family, even though he thought that she might die?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we really get the answer to any of those questions because we don't get a lot of backstory from any of the other characters. I mean, not even Grace. We don't really know that much about her. We're very much centered in the hunt, right? I mean, we don't even get... The wedding vows. We just sort of skip over everything around these people and we just have the bubble of this context that they're in. So, um, I mean, I think that it's really interesting to reflect and sort of explore what these relationships are like, but I think you're spot on. I think that clearly there's no love lost between a lot of these partnerships. Um, And even Tony and Becky, to a degree, you see Becky definitely does not respect Tony Mm. as the head of the business. I guess at the point, or like even as like a father, she's definitely running the show. Yep. But yeah, I just think that like I love how dysfunctional this family is. Yet they're all sort of working together. Nobody really likes each other, but they're all working together because they know that if they don't, then they're gonna all. Well, they assume they're gonna die, right?
0: Yeah. That's yeah. You brought up a good point with Becky because she, I, I I wrote that down about her. Like, even though, yeah, Tony's the head of the business, he's constantly losing his crap, like, throughout the entire film. And he's, like you said earlier, he's spiraling. And it's just slowly, hap- or constantly happening throughout the film. And then Becky's always the one to be like, okay, you go do this, you go do this, you go do this. Let's get this done. Like, you know what I mean? She's the only one that actually has control of, you know, of her faculties in a way to where she can mm-hmm. actually uh, figure out the situation and get things done
1: yeah and i think that that's one of the interesting things too is that the people who married into the family seem more involved in this whole process and more invested in really carrying out the murder right because yeah. helen married into it and she's clearly running the show charity married into it and she's ready to kill like yeah it's very clear that she does not have any issues with that and then fitch is very incompetent but he's trying right and so it's interesting that like even well i would argue like even especially the the family members that married into it are more invested in this whole process than the other members besides aunt helene but she's
0: so funny she's nuts there's a great sequence that uh that plays into what you were just talking about where they're all being handed their weapons and you can see the faces they they i think they really did this on purpose becky is really sad about having to kill grace. And that's apparent throughout the entire film. And then I think Tony's like ready to go charity. Yeah. She, she almost looks happy. Like I'm going to kill this mother effort so that I can keep my money. And I guess you do get a little bit of backstory from her because she comes from apparently a really poor background where she would rather die than go back to the life that she had. That's what she says to Daniel and then, yeah, and then you see Fitch's face as well, and he's he's ready to go. Or he's kind of like, really? Like, you're going to give me this or something like that? I can't remember what he says.
1: Yeah, and even when we first meet Fitch and Emily and their kids, mm. the kids come in running with the masks being like, murder, murder, kill, or whatever. Yeah. And then Daniel or Alex is like, knock it off. And then they look to their dad, and Fitch is like, you can keep on doing it, you know? Right. So, like, he clearly also doesn't have any issues with not only the whole murder, but, like, turning it into this celebratory culture in the family as well yeah so I think I mean it goes back to what you said like no respect for the sanctity of life whatsoever
0: yeah so so you have you have the characters like charity and Fitch and even Aunt Helene to a degree she kind of looks happy to get the scythe which is hilarious that like the smallest person out of all of them gets this huge heavy weapon but Um, And you have those different characters that are ready to go. Then you also have like Emily, Becky, who are not really happy to be doing this at all. But at the same time, they're too afraid to die and lose their money. So they're going to go with it anyway. And Tony as well, I guess. Well, no, he didn't. Maybe he's along with like Fitch and them. But there's just kind of like it doesn't matter, though, even though there's these two different groups of people, one of them being ready to do it. The other one like begrudgingly do it in a way. They're all motivated by the same factor of, or there's, they all have kind of the underlying thing um, in their hearts where like, I really don't want to die and I don't want to lose my money. It's self-preservation, right? Yes. In their eyes. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's really interesting to see that. Gosh, there's so many, there's actually, I have quite a bit of notes on this film and it's hard to know where to go next. Let me ask you a question. Yes. Why
1: do you think the writers had daniel and not alex be the one to like save grace.
0: That was so that's a question that I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I got to it first.
1: Take it cuz you should know. Well, I have my ideas, right? I'm just curious what I'm curious what you think.
0: Like that's that's kind of something that I I really don't I don't know. Well, okay, it might go back to the very beginning of the film because Alex like we first meet Alex and Daniel when Aunt Helene's husband is being hunted down and getting shot by the crossbows and all that stuff. And Alex is hidden in the wardrobe by Daniel. He doesn't want him to see it. He doesn't want him to be a part of this. And Daniel's that's that's definitely established in the film. He really is protective over Alex in a in a major way. He's always been protecting. I think he even says it in the film. Like, I've I've always been protecting Alex. And Daniel He still plays the game, right? Because he does call out for Aunt Helene's husband um, when they're like in the entranceway or whatever the heck. But he doesn't want, like he's always felt bad about it. I wrote that about Daniel is he's just a big bag of walking guilt constantly. You know, he's just constantly feels bad for it. He's drinking throughout the entire film, drinking his sorrows away. He feels really bad and he's just trying to bury it deep down. And so I feel like that guilt really caught up to him and, and he just, he kind of had to finally do something about it. And especially because I think grace is such a good person. I think that really like that, that drove it like, cause when he was a kid, like you don't, you don't really know what you're doing as a kid and you just kind of do what your parents tell you. But as an adult, he's like, I can't like this. So maybe, maybe Aunt Helene's husband was a really great guy and he probably felt bad about it, but he was a kid. So he didn't know what he's doing as an adult he knows like grace doesn't deserve this i can't i can't keep going like at the very beginning of the film or the hunt like he was still playing along because he was afraid to die but then eventually i think he says like we all we all deserve to die like none of us deserve to live Uh, yeah when they're throwing the maid's bodies with emily and emily's just like well my kids don't but even freaking georgie her son is he's ready to kill He's got the gun. He wanted. He snuck out of bed so that he could participate in the hunt. He really wanted to do it. So it's just like, these kids are nuts. <laughs> I,
1: I loved that scene because, yeah, Daniel is like, we deserve to die. Like, this is really messed up. And then Emily's so offended. And she's like, my kids don't deserve to die. And then immediately they see Georgie. And she's like, why are you out of bed? And he's, oh, I I shot her, I shot her. He's like pretty excited and happy about it. And she immediately is like, good job, son. And it's so interesting because... I'm so proud of you is what she says. Yeah, because literally 10 seconds ago, she was arguing that the family should stay intact because her children are innocent. And then the moment she learns that her children, in fact, are innocent, she's like so proud of them. And I think it just really, to me, goes to show how like a lot of times people will allow really bad things to keep on happening because they're like, oh, the innocent children or whatever. Mm. But at the end of the day, that's just a shield for them to hide behind because they don't want to die. So they can use children as sort of a shield to stay alive, but they don't care about the innocence of the children. It's all selfish. And I think you see that, especially with Emily. Everything she does and says is very selfish. Like even when she shoots the second nanny in the face, Mm -hmm. Um, and she's killed two people at this point, the first thing she says is like, why does this keep on happening to me, right? (laughs) It's like, you literally just killed two innocent people and you're more concerned about its impact on your life than the people you just killed. And so-
0: That's a good point.
1: I think that we, we see that throughout that, and it goes back to the message you said of like rich people, I don't remember what it was at the beginning, but like rich people don't- Only care about money. Yeah, rich people only care about money. Like, I think you see rich people- only care about themselves and their money, right? Because every time they kill the help, someone's like, well, does that count as a sacrifice? And it's like, yeah. they don't they don't care that a human being just died. It's all about how this benefits them and how it protects their estate and their wealth and their status and their dominion, right? And I think that I just love seeing that anyway, especially with Emily's character where she's so offended that Daniel thinks that her children deserve to die and she's like, they're innocent and then... Clearly, we're saying that Georgie is willing to commit murder.
0: Yeah, the kid's already messed up. Going back to your your uh, question, though, of why Daniel might have saved her uh, instead of Alex, I think, I guess going off of even Emily, like, even, even Alex is selfish to a degree. Because, we, well, okay, to a degree. Like, he's 100% selfish. The whole time. Because he knows... He knows for a fact that there's the possibility that his his great, you know, awesome wife could possibly draw that card and die. And yet he's willing, he, he claims or whatever, like, I, I doubted that it would even happen. Like, no one ever pulls that card. Like, I was just hoping that, and he, he also says it to Tony, like, once we play the game, like, we're gone in the morning. It's over. Like, we're out. And, like, you could tell that he doesn't like what's going on in the in the family. He thinks they're messed up and he was hoping that he would just get away with it, you know, scot-free. And Grace wouldn't even know that there was a game like this. That all she was just she was just gonna draw chess or whatever and then everything was gonna be fine. They were gonna leave in the morning, leave the family behind, and it was all gonna be okay. But he's still willing to part her or he's still willing to take that chance even with Grace, even with his loved one. And something interesting to note, I think, is that I I feel like he's probably, they're they're probably in their 30s, no? Do you think they're in their 20s? They're probably in their 30s. So he's held off for a long time, I think. And so I wonder, not that like, oh, can you blame him or whatever, but I wonder if he's been holding off for so long and just kind of rejecting everyone, and he finally found someone that he just couldn't reject anymore. Like, this is... Like, I'm in my 30s. I can't... Like, I need a loved one or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, why didn't you just date her for the rest of your life if you knew that this was going to happen? Because... Well, he it's explained, right? Well, he says that you can't elope, but he didn't ever say anything about just dating them. Yeah. And so, this is, I think, part of the reason I love the fact that Alex doesn't become
1: the good guy. So, when they're in the tunnel, right after, you know, they see the first maid get killed and she, he's sort of explaining the rules... Yeah. He we learn that he thinks that Grace would have left him if they didn't get married. And, um, which is maybe true. Maybe Grace would have left him if they didn't get married, but he explains like, Oh, if, if I didn't propose to you, if we didn't get married, you would have left me. And that's why he went through with it. Mm. Um, which to me is, uh, it's so good because you see at that moment, like he doesn't love her Mm. because if he really loved Grace he would have been like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to let you go yeah. because it's very possible that you're going to die and I love you and I don't want you to die. But his version of love is power and control. Mm. He wants ownership of grace and he only sees grace as someone who can benefit him. And you see that when he's tied up in the bedroom and I think he's talking to his mom about grace and he's like, oh, I'm, I choose her, I want her. And he says the reason that he chose grace was, I think the words he specifically uses was, she made me feel like I could be good too. That's what he says. So even his love for grace is rooted in what grace does for him. Mm. It's not, he doesn't see grace as a standalone individual person. He sees grace as an object that makes him feel better about himself. And so at the very end, when he says Uh, what does he say here at the very end? You won't be with me after this, will you? Then he decides to kill her because for him, his love is his ownership. And if he can't
0: own her, then she's useless to him. So I might as well well kill you. I do think there's a a little more to that though. I think there's, and I'll explain that in a second. But just going back to that conversation that he was having with his mom, Becky, even, even Becky says in that moment that he must have said something else that you didn't that you didn't mention a second ago, but she says, "Oh, honey, if you believe that, then you wouldn't have let her draw the card you know so even even she is just like like if you really cared about her, you wouldn't have done this in the first place, you know, so she even recognizes that he made a horrible mistake, <laughs> you know, and he, he he is a bad person in a way, yeah, I think that that was in the
1: context of Him saying, it's not real. Like, why are we doing this? Oh, yeah. And she's like, if you did if you didn't think it was real, you wouldn't have come back to do this. Like obviously something made you do this. But I think it's really interesting in that scene because these, you know, quote unquote bad guys have these moments of sympathy, right? Where Helen's like, oh, I really or Becky's like, I really don't want to do this. I feel really bad. And it's like, okay, you feel really bad about it, but you're still doing it how you feel about killing someone doesn't matter if at the end of the day you're going to kill them. And I love that the writers are sort of trying to build this like pseudo sympathy for these characters. But at the end of the day, they have no redeeming qualities because when push comes to shove, I mean, even with Alex, they're willing to kill whoever they need to kill to protect themselves.
0: Yeah. Again, I think again, going back to that question of like why Daniel might've done it now that we've really gotten to the root of, of of Alex's character and why or just the fact that he is insanely selfish. I never really looked at it that way until you said it. But yeah, he is really really selfish. Daniel seems to be the only one that really isn't because even though he's going through everything, he has always been protecting Alex, which is inherently a selfless act, right? So everything's been about protecting Alex. And um even even at the very beginning with the wedding, um he comes in and gives Alex a hard time and then he says hey like you can cut and run at any moment dude to grace i think and then he i i don't know there's some other conversation or whatever and then he he walks out but even then he's like trying to protect grace trying to protect Alex just in case the car does get pulled and he really is like the only selfless person in the entire film i i think who knows maybe the other Maybe the other little boy who didn't sneak out to go kill Grace. <laughs> Maybe he's selfless too, and he's sort of a Daniel in a way. But yeah, I think that, that everything that we've been talking right there, about right there, I think that all sums up why Daniel probably would have been the one.
1: Yeah. And I love too when he does save Grace. She's like, I knew you would save me. And he's like, I didn't. Oh, does he say that? <laughs> like, Yeah, he says something along the lines of like, I didn't know I was going to come here. And I think you see that throughout, right, where he's like, oh, I don't want to be the one to sort of rat you out and get you killed. But like, I have to do it for my family, but I don't want to do this, but I need to. And so I think that you see that when he like doesn't immediately when they're in the the billiards room, he doesn't immediately call the family, but he eventually calls them or... When they're out in the forest and he does like knock her out or whatever, um, like you see him sort of waffling back and forth between these two things. But when push comes to shove, he's the only family member that's really going to put Grace's life above their own dominion. But even then, he doesn't poison his family enough to kill them. Right. He just he doesn't want them to die. Yeah. And so I think that you really see this struggle with Daniel. But I think you're right in the fact that he's really just driven a lot by like grief and the trauma of realizing that he was the one that got his aunt's husband killed. And then having to like carry that and then realizing as he grows up, like, well, my family's really messed up like this isn't normal. And so just I think that you see a lot of that conflict in Daniel, which I just I thought that that was great. And then I think it's so interesting that they had. Charity kill Daniel, right? Like a wife kill her husband. Yeah. Like that part I thought was great. And she says something to the effect of, you really don't care if I die, do you? And then she shoots him in the neck. Right. I just, I really thought that that was very
0: poetic too. That raises a question in me of, of did Daniel ever really love Charity? You know, going back to my earlier, like kind of observation that Emily and Daniel seem to choose total you know, a-holes or whatever, because they didn't want to bring in a good person into this messed up family. But there's a line that Daniel exchanges with Charity saying, oh, like, you didn't even bat an eye when I told you about this. And I'm wondering if that was the moment when he stopped loving her or if he didn't really love her in the first place. But yeah, that, that tells you a lot about their relationship, that it's, even since the day that they've been married, at least, they've never really, like, that's when the whole relationship went to crap and he's just been tolerating it and probably tolerating it because he didn't want to bring anyone else into this family yeah or maybe there's a rule that if you get divorced you die i have no idea (laughs) but
1: yeah i don't know and i think that that also sort of leads into why daniel does eventually decide to save grace because i think daniel has realized like there is no in the pun, but like saving grace to this family, <clears throat> there's nothing good, like everything good that can exist in this family. Like we literally destroy it. Either we like literally kill them in grace's case or like us having to be these like really malicious evil people sort of ruins relationships, ruins marriages, ruins like literally everything. And so the only comfort that these rich people can have is in their money and in their status and in their dominion. But I think Daniel has just sort of realized at the end, like he even says, like, somebody has to burn it all down. And I think that's very Mm. um, indicative of his character when he's realized, like, yeah, this all sucks. Like, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Like, it's horrible.
0: Yeah. And after talking about this, it makes me wonder if if mainly... Or because the money is the root of all evil, that's definitely a theme in here. I, I would think, but maybe there's a way bigger theme that I didn't really think of until just now, that was more intended that you'll do anything for family, because that's that's mentioned a lot. Like you'll do anything. Like I'll do any. Like Becky says that. Like I'll do anything to protect my family, and that's when she tries to kill. Like she finally actually lunges at Grace and tries to kill her and choke her out or something like that. And it's, yeah, it is interesting to see that Daniel's the only one that is willing to throw away the entire family in order to save the life of one person that actually deserves to live. So maybe, yeah, I wonder if that was like a really, like that was uh, that was something that they really wanted to do with this film is that you should probably buck the trend <laughs> if... If it's not a good trend. Yeah. You see that too. When Alex is talking to his mom and
1: he's like, yeah, I never really saw anything weird about us killing goats and slitting their throats. And (laughs) then he says like, you'll, I realize that you'll pretty much do anything if your family says it's okay. Mm. And so there's definitely a very strong message of like not questioning problematic family traditions or family cultures. Uh, I think too, it's it's obviously a commentary on, like, obscenely wealthy people, right, who, um, in order to gain and maintain generational wealth to the extent that many obscenely wealthy people have it, you have to, in some sense, um, exploit other human beings and have, you know, quote, unquote, like, blood on your hands to have, like, that... Uh, amount of generational wealth in your possession and i think that that's obviously like a very clear message in this in this movie um but like you said it sort of is like what will you do to protect your family or protect your family's wealth and i think it's just kind of like a fun exploration of that idea in this movie
0: yeah even you know trying to to keep your family and and yeah the wealth and everything like you were saying it's interesting that they have these traditions that they've been going they're a family of traditions tony says and and even then, he's willing to turn on the security cameras to make sure that they don't die. <laughs> yeah, the, that, which would break a huge long-standing tradition that they would never use the security cameras for their advantage. And I think it goes back to like
1: we were talking about Emily sort of hiding behind this shield of like, oh, my innocent children. I think like you see a lot of these family members who are saying, yeah, this is tradition. We don't do this. We don't do that. Having these like justifications and then. Sometime later, them completely blowing up that justification because not following that justification now benefits them. And so you see a lot of uh, the rich, wealthy family change the rules in order to benefit themselves.
0: Yeah, 100 percent. Man, they're a-holes, huh? <laughs> they're like the worst. That's that's funny. Now, just the fact that I said a-hole. Fitch calls Daniel an a-hole and arguably he's the only one that's not an a-hole. <laughs> yeah. In a way. Oh, my gosh. Hey, I wanted to ask you a question. Unless you had something that like really important that you wanted to say, go for it. Okay, do do you think that Aunt Helene somehow knew? Like, did she know that she was going to draw that Grace was going to draw the hide and seek card? Because, because right after the wedding, or or I guess later that night, I guess um, Alex and Grace are getting intimate in the room, and and then Grace looks up and then sees Aunt Helene in the doorway. And Aunt Helene straight up says, You're gonna need to hide better than that, or something like that. How the F did she know? I guess maybe that goes into later when she's like, Oh, Alex and I are the same or whatever, and that's why maybe she just had a feeling. But when I was watching the film for the first time, I was just like, Did you what did you do? Did you tamper with this because you didn't like Grace? Cause it's it's obviously in the beginning of the film, like she's constantly looking at Grace like with disappointment and disapproval. That she hated her that much that she tampered with the box to kill her. I have no idea. But what do you think? Yeah, I don't...
1: I think you're right. I think she probably knew in the sense of like, I had to go through this. And Alex is really similar to me. And he is probably gonna have to go through this. But for me, I don't even see it as like, she doesn't like Grace. Or she has this like personal distaste for her. I think Helene is so lost in like this family's culture and these families' beliefs that she doesn't see it as personal. She's just like, I have to kill you because it's like part of our family tradition. And Hmm. she believes that she had to go through the whole ordeal of losing her own husband to put her on the right trajectory, blah, blah, blah. Like you kind of, she gives that speech sort of in the bedroom. And I think that for her, it's like not personal. She just sees it as like the task that she has to do because it's fallen in her lap and it's going to be the same task for Alex as well. Interesting.
0: Okay, yeah, I was just really curious about that.
1: So we talked a little bit about how Grace kills the mom, but she also possibly kills the nanny and the dumb waiter. We're not one hundred percent sure, and she she likely killed the butler too because after she crashes the after the car crashes, we don't see anything else from him. That's a good point. So, what did you think about her sort of not proactively, but like her killing? Three people, because we don't normally get that in a lot of movies where the protagonist kills someone without like having to kill the
0: person. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't. Killing someone without having to. So she does that a lot. I mean, with Stevens, it makes sense. Or sorry, with Stevens, she doesn't really actively kill him. She's just kind of self, like in self defense. You know, knocking him out or whatever, so that they can crash the car and she can finally get away. She didn't like outright do it. The dumb waiter thing, I think, was a complete accident because the way that she's looking at it is just like, oh shoot, like what just happened? And then she runs away because obviously she's got to run. And so that's why I look at Becky as the only one that she actively kills, which is interesting because Becky's the only one that's really remorseful over the whole thing. Um, like even with Charity, Charity pulls the gun and kills Daniel, who's the only person that's trying to save her life. Um, She just knocks her out with the the pistol that she had, and that's it, and leaves it, you know, and, and runs away, and then runs into Becky, I think, is what happens. To me, it made sense. Just because everything really... I think everything just built up and built up, and it all just came out right there, because it was just so messed up, and she couldn't help it. She just had to let out all of her aggression. I don't know exactly why it was Becky... I Maybe that was specifically because I think that would have happened with any of them at that specific moment. If if someone was trying to choke her out, I think it all would have just been a, a, a loss of control and, and just really go primal in that moment where you just you just got to kill, you know, because it's just messed up everything that's been happening. And it's just hard to control the emotion in that in that moment. But I think I think a big reason why it had to be Becky. And this isn't really to your question, but. Um, something that I really wanted to, to touch on, I think it ha- it had to be Becky. It had to be the mom. Be- and going back to what I was talking about earlier of of when Alex, you know, basically asked her the question, like you were you weren't or you're not you're probably not going to stay with me after this, right? And and then she says no, and then he decides to kill her. I don't think that it was necessarily just that, you know, like it it wasn't just um her rejecting him in that moment that made him flip a switch i think that he he stumbles across daniel daniel's dead right daniel's daniel obviously can't explain what happened and that charity is the one that killed him and then he walks in on grace bashing becky's skull in with the box <laughs> it's it's a terrible (laughs) it's like insanely this whole movie is so gory it's so poetic though which I love yeah and bashing bashing her head in with a box and I think he might have thought that the only two people that Alex actually cared about in this entire family his mom and Daniel most importantly I think he thought that Grace killed both of them and then goes ahead and you know rejects him and I think all of that was like well then F it then we're done, I guess. Because if we wouldn't have gotten married, you would have left me anyway. You killed all the only family members that I actually cared about, and you don't even want to be with me. You're done. We're done. I'm going to kill you. I might as well stay with the rest of my family that's actually alive still.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think even more than that, it's about his own self-preservation, right? I don't think he even really cares about staying with the rest of his family. I think that at that point, he realizes, oh, you know what? Maybe I do believe in this curse. And My brother and my mom are dead. My wife's going to leave me. So I might as well kill my wife and stay alive still. And I think that, again, that goes back to what you said of him being really selfish, that he really is only in this to benefit himself, right? He married Grace because it benefited himself. He wanted to save Grace because it benefited himself. And then he decides to kill Grace because it benefits him. So, yeah, I think at every point you see Alex making these really bad decisions or these really selfish decisions that he's trying to play off as really good decisions or uh, nice decisions. But at the end of the day, it's really all just about how he how it benefits him.
0: I mean, yeah, that's the underlying like the root of it all for sure for him. And then everything else just kind of explains. Yeah. Explains a way why he should just go with it. Yeah, I really liked actually that um, she sort of
1: kills Becky without... Because a lot of times like the trope in movies is like the good guy can kill the bad guy, but then the good guy decides not to. And then the bad guy, you know, does a sneak attack and tries to, you know, take advantage of the act of uh, kindness. And then the bad guy or the good guy has to kill the bad guy in order to save themselves, right? Like, I think it's in like Lion King where... Mufasa or Scar is like falling and then one of the lions saves him. And then I don't know. I mean, you see that trope all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I really liked that. That wasn't the trope here. Like Grace didn't have to wait for Becky to like be putting her in that rough spot. Grace was like, I have the upper hand right now. I'm not going to give you the chance to take it away from me. And I really just, I liked that because um, especially considering the way that Grace got into the situation, because you learn that Grace really wants to get married and she really wants to have um, a family. And yeah. I think she says, like, quote, not live in sin or something like that. Oh, Yeah, right. And so there's this sort of, like, ethical drive for her that puts her in this really bad situation. And then at the very end, you see her sort of, like, disregard this, like, quote, unquote, ethical drive and just, like, kill Becky and I just I think that it's really strong character growth and then I I think
0: even on top of that because we touched on it earlier every like no one actually seems like they're fit to lead the family and Becky's the only one really who actually kind of takes control actually properly takes control of the situation even though Tenny or sorry Tony is constantly trying to take control of the situation he's losing it. Throughout the film, she's the only one that's actually controlling the family. It makes me wonder if she's really the one that's leading it in the first place. You know, behind it, I think we talked about it in a couple episodes ago. Behind every woman or every every man is a strong woman or something like that. And I don't I don't know exactly how the saying goes. So I think even in in another sense, that wasn't really intentional. I'm sure, but uh, it that Becky was probably the one that needed to die because she was the one that's really leading the family, and she's the one that's probably going to keep it alive. Yeah, I could see that. I think one of the things that
1: I really like in this movie and watching it the second time around, it was a little bit more um, obvious to me, but I really liked how we see sort of time and time again, how systems that are in place to like quote unquote protect us or help us are completely useless to grace in this situation. And I think it's really apparent in the scene where she takes the car from the butler um, and she uses like the on star thing or whatever. And she's talking to the guy and she's like, people are trying to kill me. Please send the police out. And like, he's like, Oh, this car has been reported stolen. We have to shut it down. It's company policy. Right. And she's like, I'm literally being hunted down by these people. They want to kill me. Why are you shutting this car down? And he's like, Oh, it's company policy. There's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. And then she starts cussing at him and he's like, really upset and like there's no need for profanity and i just really like that scene because a few minutes earlier we had the scene where the rich guy drives by and doesn't help her and then we have this random faceless customer service agent and he's more concerned and the system is more concerned with protecting property than protecting life it's all about the car and having to protect the car and its company policy this guy can't do anything even though he's being told by Grace that she's going to be murdered. He's not doing anything to protect her life. It's all about the car. And then we don't see any police in this movie until the very end when the house is on fire, right? Yeah. So it's like, I think that's a very symbolic as well that like the police don't come and get involved until there's property damage. And I think that this idea of like these systems that are supposed to like save human lives, if they're not closely like analyzed or questioned, or if we don't sort of like shirk them off, in very obvious contexts where human life is being threatened, then it's very easy for the default to just become like protecting property and not really valuing the human life that needs to be valued in that context. I like that you see that kind of how you mentioned earlier, sort of this lack of uh, respecting the sanctity of life. You see that extended beyond just this like, really evil family. You see it with the rich guy that drives by. You see it with the butler helping for some reason. You see it with the nanny and the dumbwaiter calling out for Grace to be killed. You see it with the on-star guy. Like, nobody really is putting human life at as a value if it doesn't benefit them. And I just, I, I really like that that concept that plays out in lots of different ways
0: yeah uh, something that you just going off of the on star thing something else that ends up being used is the gun that she grabs from the from the whatever the study order <laughs> which is hilarious because that's that gun and the ammo uh i guess belt or whatever that she has on her is on the cover of the film <laughs> so you think there's gonna be like this bad a moment <laughs> but it ends up being uh blanks or whatever just for show i guess is what uh steven says and uh and then he takes the gun away and, and you think she's gonna blow Stevens' head off. She was definitely willing to kill Stevens. That actually raises another question. Like why why do like do the maids really need do they really need to be a part of this? You know what I mean? Like I and even the butler, like Stevens, like would he even die if she wasn't killed? Like I don't know why they care so much. At least one of the
1: nannies doesn't know, right? Sure. The one in the dumbwaiter is like, what's going on? I don't know what's happening. So I'm assuming that the three don't know. And it sounds like those are the three that came with Fitch and Emily. So they probably aren't as closely tied to the core of the family. Um, I feel like the butler gets involved. Well, I think one just thematically, like it's always the butler, you know, in these kinds (laughs) of things. Sure. So there's always like a butler doing shady stuff and this kind of stuff. But I also think... It goes back to this idea of, like, he values his position with his family more than he values Grace's life. And so he's willing to kill Grace, not because he's going to die if it doesn't work out, but he's going to lose his job. So Mm. he's willing to go kill this random lady because no skin off his back, right? If she's dead, like, he has a job still. So
0: Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering about that. Like, why did they... Like, yeah, obviously the one that got killed by the dumb waiter, that maid, she was just trying to make sure that she didn't die. But, yeah, it's just like, why do they, why do they care so much? Yeah, which I think goes back to what you were saying of, like, the evilness of
1: this family. You do see people making really, like, quote-unquote evil decisions, but it's a lot less obvious because they're not being forced into these, like, overtly evil things. They're doing evil Act sort of in complicity or think something like that so i do like that you see a lot of
0: like non-main bad guys doing bad guy things <laughs> yeah that's true and yeah. and yeah again all for i guess self-preservation in a way mm-hmm. i have this question for you why do you think that the directors and slash writers i guess chose the for the super the superstition to actually be real at the end Do you like in other words, like do you think it would have been more interesting to you if it would have ended up being totally fake the whole time and and there there really wasn't anything at all? And they just all did it out of self preservation and there really wasn't anything that was actually threatening to them whatsoever? Or do you think it was really good for it to actually be real? You know, to have Labelle give her the nod at the end? I like that it's real. And maybe this is
1: just coming from my own like socio political beliefs, but I think that with people who are obscenely wealthy, in order for there to be real justice, those entire dominions have to be torn down. You cannot have obscenely wealthy people exist and also be able to solve obscene poverty. Mm. So I think that I really like that. At the end of the movie it is a real thing and they do lose everything because they made like a deal with the devil and so i like that i mean daniel says somebody has to burn it down speaking metaphorically and then grace literally burns the house down and i think that that's very symbolic of like we have to sort of like tear down these dominions or these like systems of exploitation and whatnot in order to really bring about true justice. So I really like that it's... And I think, too, it kind of gives it sort of like a more silly, fun vibe that, (laughs) like, it's real, you know?
0: Yeah, and actually something that's really interesting to think about because eventually, I think, like, two-thirds into the film in, in some kind of office or something like that, Tony's talking about another family who... They all burnt down in a fire, but that's what the media would like you to believe or something like that. So he <laughs> knew the true nature of like how they died, where we could draw the assumption that they they also made a deal with the devil. And the Ladomas family knows about that and knew that they were going to explode. I don't know why they wouldn't have divul- like divulged that information to the rest of their family members so that they really... Know that this thing is true because all of the family members are constantly, well, all the younger ones, the younger generations are constantly questioning if, if this thing is real, and you you see that too, like in the bathroom with Fitch, she's like, "Are deals with the devils like real or not?" And then his friend like texts Kip or whatever, and it's just like, "Hey, dude, how's it going?" And it was like, "Oh, just f- some family shiz," <laughs> like just yeah, Fitch, dude, but but like they don't they don't really know, but it seems like Tony knows, and there are multiple rich families that have their fortunes because they made a deal with the devil. Yeah. Um I, I'm trying to think, let me look here real quick. There's a part
1: where um Tony is telling the story of how their family got their wealth and he says uh you know he's talking about the ship and uh whatnot and when he's talking about Mr. Labelle he says that his job is uh purchasing exotic antiques to sell to wealthy Americans um, So I think that there's... Which is the box. Yes. And I think that the implication there is that there are lots of other families that are wealthy that have their dominions built on a deal with the devil. So
0: I think it's... It's kind of a weird... Like, you kind of have to, like, figure this out for yourself in a way because... Like I, I didn't really look at it as a deal with the devil because in the story he's just talking about the box. You know, he didn't actually explain like, oh, we made a deal with the devil so that we can get our fortune. It's just the box, and ever since then we've been drawing this box when a new family member joins, joins the family, and so it's kind of a weird. I don't know. It's kind of a weird, like disconnected thing that I try to piece together. Yeah, but they just kind of, they just kind of put out there anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and I think
1: going back to your question of, like, would it be more enjoyable or better if the deal with the devil was real or wasn't real? I really love the end sequence, like you were saying. Once Colleen yeah. opens the blinds and they're all sort of, like, preparing to die, but they don't really know how it's going to happen. Like a
0: hocus pocus moment.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then they're like, oh, it's not real. And then, like you had mentioned earlier, Fitch is like, what do we do about the girl? Right? And then... Yeah you sort of see the family being thinking that the deal isn't real, but then they're still going to
0: kill her. Right. And so it's like, well, I guess aunt Helene actually still believes it though. It's like, I still believe Mr. LaBelle, like we got to kill her. Yeah. Or she still dies. Yeah, Yeah. She still dies. But
1: I think that that to me is really like important that they're still willing to kill her because they, they now need to kill her to protect themselves from like a PR blitz or whatever, whereas before they thought they had to kill her because of the deal with LaBelle. But I think it's really interesting to see that, like, regardless of why they have to kill her, they're willing to kill her. <laughs> and I think that that sort of translates to all the family members. And then it does turn out to be real. But I really like that you see that regardless of it was if it was real or not, this family
0: is willing to kill to maintain their status and their privilege. Yeah. Uh something that I saw in the trivia that was interesting is they actually had two different endings for this. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, so no I, I think no matter what, like the the whole superstition was probably gonna be real. But the ending that we see is that Grace lives, everyone explodes, right? She dodges the knife at the very last second. Well, I guess she still gets stabbed in the uh, in the shoulder, but um and then she just kind of buys her time until Anne opens up the window. And like you said, but another ending that in an early draft, I think is what they said in the film or for the film was that she was going to get sacrificed and that was going to be the end of it. She was going to die. Yeah. What, what would you have thought of that ending?
1: I would have hated it. Really? I mean, I feel like it's more like, quote unquote, realistic in the sense that like, uh, that's probably what would have happened just because, sure. um, they know the house better. They know the rules. They have way more home field advantage. But I just love that they all explode. <laughs> I think that that is just like, just a beautiful <laughs> cherry on the top, beautiful touch. And it's so, ugh, it just like it's so over the top, and I love it so much.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, I I agree that the ending's awesome. Personally, I feel like I would have liked the the alternate ending. Just, I'm a huge Black Mirror fan, and. Those endings are never happy, like, at all. <laughs> it always ends with the bad guy winning or or even the good guy losing somehow. And um, that's actually why I loved Infinity War as well. I think Infinity War is better than Endgame for anyone who watches the Marvel films. Just because, you know, it's just kind of ends on a low note. And I feel like, personally, I just would have really... I like feeling like uh garbage at the end of a film for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why that's just me, I suppose, but i I think it would have i I don't really necessarily have like a good reason why I would have liked that ending. I just feel like movies really sit with me a lot more if the bad guy loses, and I really think about like if the good guy loses, you mean sorry, yeah, if the good guy loses yeah that that really sits with me a lot a lot more and it's it kind of hits me deeper in a way, yeah, I think it's definitely more realistic in the sense
1: of reflecting society. Like we don't usually when, um, you know, a poor individual goes up against a wealthy class of individuals or a wealthy system, they usually lose. Right. So that's definitely more reflective of society in general, but I get enough of that is with society. I need some like escapism here. And I just think too, like the way that they crafted Grace's character She's so entertaining to see win because she is not like somber or like sad that they had to die or like really reflective. She's like, I do not care about these people. I'm so glad they're dead. Better them than me. Like she just like I love the way that she sort of takes the victory. It's not meek at all. She is like, you know what? I deserve this they deserved what they got and I just I love that ending that she has no remorse for having been the one that comes out on top I just love it I love it
0: no it's uh, it's so good because at the very end uh, the police show up she's smoking a cigarette at the very end just like at the very beginning before the wedding in the first place she's smoking a cigarette and the the like some police officer comes up to her and is like, what happened or something or like what happened to you? And she says in-laws, <laughs> what a nonchalant, like it makes me wonder though, because I'm always, I, I bring this question up in the Edward Scissorhands episodes that we did. I'm always, I'm always interested in the aftermath. Like I, I wonder what really happened to her afterwards. Cause I would probably be totally screwed up after that. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I just watched a bunch of people explode right before my eyes and I bashed a woman's face in. You know, (laughs) like I'm probably going to be screwed up for the rest of my life. But that's what I love about this, though, is like you see
1: really clear character development for Grace. Mm. And I think I was reading about it that the costume department made like 17 different dresses for her to wear. To, that like reflected her mood or like her attitude at the time Interesting. and I really love that that because you see her right at the very beginning of the movie she's very like happy and she she's had a hard life growing up but she's like so ready for to be part of this family and she wants it so bad and then like once she realizes it's them or me she's like I'm not gonna just like roll over I'm gonna fight this and then yeah. she gets it she deserves it at the end and I just I love her character even her acting is phenomenal like when she's like Breathing really heavy and panting and screaming. Like, I just feel like she does such a good job of reflecting a lot of those emotions that you would really be experiencing, right? She's like hyperventilating and, yeah, yeah. Like the whole goat pit scene when she's crawling up the ladder. Oh, yeah. Oh, so good. Like, she's phenomenal. She did such a good job.
0: Yeah, that that is that is one of the things that I wrote and I said at the very beginning like the perf- all the performances every single one of the performances are very authentic. Yeah. When I look at actors and stuff, like there there are some actors whose performances like, "Oh, you're doing a really good job acting. Good job," you know? And then there are others where I'm like, "You are this character." Like I can't even see acting. You're literally just you're just that person right there and I can I can see that it's 100% authentic. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. She did a a fantastic job acting. I do want to say though, that I couldn't, I I wrote this question down of like, uh, do you think that she regretted, uh, screaming the way that she did for the last half of the film? Because it's the most, it was a little bit of a hard watch for me. Her screaming was really annoying to me. I'm not going to lie. It's authentic. Like when she's being like, uh, held down and stuff like anytime this i mean i think the really the first time that you really actually start hearing her scream is is in that that like dead body pit um in the in the goat barn um and she like stabs her hand in the nail and she got shot and all that stuff yeah also i guess that nail was actually cg it wasn't a real nail um hopefully which makes sense (laughs) but (laughs) because why yeah why would she anyway sorry um that was just an interesting thing and I just could I'm not going to lie I just I couldn't stand her screaming. Oh really? I loved it. I thought she did such a good job
1: with all of like it's definitely over the top in the sense of like you don't normally see that level of like emotion and hysteria and hyperventilating and stuff like it's definitely more like reined in for the screen but like you said I think it is very authentic
0: I would have been screaming much worse so <laughs> I can I can respect it I just thought it was funny I actually saw there were some quotes from a um uh oh like a commentary track or whatever that they were doing for the film and she like at that scene at the very end when she gets stabbed in the shoulder at that last ritual, um, and she she grabs the knife and and is pointing it at them and screaming. This is the worst scream to me, by the way. It was like really annoying to me, but it, again, very authentic. It makes a lot of sense. I just couldn't I just couldn't take it. But um, apparently in the commentary track, she's like, "Wow, I'm like an animal, huh?" <laughs> yeah, and she really is. Like she's in fight or flight mode, and she is definitely gonna fight right there. Yeah, too, and I think, too, we actually... I was
1: talking to my wife about that in that scene because she makes this noise that sounds like a goat. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's like... I don't know, it feels very symbolic because they sort of talk about sacrificing goats earlier, and so Mm. the family definitely sees Grace as less than human, and I think that that comes out there at the end, so...
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's a good observation. Yeah, I mean, they... Throughout this whole movie this family does not see other people as human, right? Even when like the nannies die and stuff, like they have no remorse for that. It's all about what how it benefits the family and like right. you don't see them really caring about other people besides themselves, which is yeah. intentional obviously, so.
0: I wanted to ask a quick question. Do you think that Daniel uh earned redemption at the end or do you think he still deserved to die technically? I guess that means what you it depends on what you mean by redemption cuz
1: I mean he does die but I mean I don't know I I don't know if I can Or do you
0: think he was redeemed?
1: I guess not necessarily earned redemption, but do you think he was redeemed at the end? I think his character is redeemed because he does end up essentially sacrificing his life for grace's life where at the beginning of the movie, he chooses his family over Helene's husband's life. So I think that he's redeemed because he does save her. Okay. Like she would have died if it weren't for him.
0: Yeah, I agree. I was just wondering where you, where you uh, fell down on that.
1: Yeah. And I also do, I will say, I like that he doesn't see himself as wanting to save Grace as a reason that he should stay alive. Because you see that with Alex, right? At the very end, he's like, oh, I got a do-over. It's you and me. We can be together. Like Alex is still all about like, how is this going to benefit me? How am I going to come out alive at the end of this? But Daniel is like, we need to burn it down. That means I'm going to die. I don't care. Like, I need to save Grace. Like, she's worth it. And so I really like that he doesn't use this, like, good quality about himself to sort of, like, score points. And I think that that in itself is also redeeming.
0: Yeah. It's kind of sad because I feel like those two were actually destined for each other in a way. Like, they deserve to be together. <laughs> not yeah. Not anyone else. But he died. It's too late. Also, Charity sucks. It's funny that her name is Charity and she's the one that's most fueled by money, I think. Yeah, Charity and Grace, right? They're very Oh, I didn't even think about Grace. Yeah. Grace's name in a literal sense.
1: Yeah, there's there's lots of symbolism in the in the names. I was looking up uh like Labale. Le Let me see if I can find it here. So LaBale is an anagram for Belial or Bilal, Um which is a term occurring in the Hebrew Bible, which later becomes personified as the devil in Jewish and Christian texts. So oh. Labale is an anagram for essentially the devil, even Ladomus I think is it's a very unique name. Um, and there was an article I was reading that sort of explores a few different meanings behind it. So one of them was that a Domus is like a type of housing that was inhabited by the upper class in ancient Rome. Mm. So that's one thing. Um, also the last name Domus is, uh, centuries ago like referred to laborers and farmers and we get that whole story about how the great-great-grandfather whatever used to be like really poor so you see that i think the writers say that it's just supposed to be an anagram for fallen angel asmodel which is like a character in the dc universe or something like that so okay i think but there's definitely lots of symbolism in in the name you even see it too with like um when they're panning the the games at the beginning you see like family ritual, secret council, labelle's gambit. Yeah. You see a lot of really like ominous sounding names. So I think there's definitely symbol symbolism in those names.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because those those games to me are you know, really foreshadowing what's gonna happen in the in the entire film. For sure. I'm not sure if they sh- because Because, like, the first three games that we see are, like, Family Ritual, Mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, Yowzers, which is funny. I don't know why. (laughs) It's just, like, I guess that just kind of explains, like, how crazy everything is. Yeah. And then there's Secret Council. Very ominous. Very, you know, like, all these these different game titles that are just telling you exactly what's going to be happening. And then later on, maybe it showed it at the beginning, but I don't remember. Later on, I noticed that one of the games was called Sunrise and they all died at sunrise oh and then there's there's like another there's another game i can't remember what it was i can't find it but um yeah i I was kind of wondering because they show this game twice labelle's gambit Mm -hmm. what what is gambit what is that like officially it's like a it's like a risk that you take i think okay okay so uh, taking a risk like that's that's why for like, like a big payout for a big payout so that's why i was like that's that's why I have so many questions, I think, mostly about Labelle. Like like what was what was what was the whole point of hide and seek? Like Labelle's gambit. I feel like that was really explaining the fact that the game of hide and seek was being played and why is that a gambit? Like what was his hope for that? I don't know. I think the whole gambit is like you have all this wealth and power and
1: dominion but you have to do this risky thing right you might not you might die at the end of it i think that it's just sort of like they are i mean essentially selling their souls for their dominion so okay yeah i don't know if you notice this but when the nanny is reading the bedtime stories to the kids Mm -hmm. you know yeah and i think it's the scene when grace is trying to find a hiding place yeah um the nanny is reading from Paradise Lost, okay, which is like an epic poem about like the fall of Adam and Eve and like the fall of Satan, and it's like a very biblical text type thing. But there's specifically the nanny is specifically reading a line that is a speech that Satan gives in the story, okay. and the speech is essentially about how Satan says that it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven and i just love that like that's so that little easter egg is so good like this nanny is reading paradise lost which is you know this epic poem or whatever to these children and you get a a big a sentence that's all about ambition
0: and dominion and reigning and stuff so it's like brainwashing these kids right from the get go my gosh yeah you even see that too when when becky is
1: they have Grace captured and then Becky sits down with the two kids and Emily and Becky is giving like a really watered down version. She's like, Mr. Labelle is the reason we have nice things, but sometimes oh. he wants something in return, right? Right. So you see like, and I think that this is really ingenious of the creators, where you see this like really horrific, really gross, evil act happening and then you see a scene where like it's distilled into very digestible facts for children and i think that that is so important because it goes back to what alex said of like if your family says something it's okay mm. you're going to think it's okay and i think that that really should get us questioning like what in our society I mean, maybe our families, but I highly doubt any of our families are hunting people like this.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. not. But, <laughs> right.
1: But just like what what have I accepted that's like normal in everyday life? Where if you really look at it, it's completely unethical and really, really problematic. So I just I really liked having that scene of the kids, like you said, getting brainwashed kind of into thinking this is okay.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, uh, that's that's something huge that I've been seeing more and more lately in life in general. Just yeah, piggybacking off of what you, you what you're saying, you just. It's it's a good idea to ask questions. (laughs) Yep, yep, for sure. Even if you don't necessarily like, even if the answer ends up being the one that you thought it was going to be, or whatever, and and what's most acceptable, or whatever the heck, like even if it turns out to work in your favor, but you should always be asking questions in case, uh, like you know, just kind of give yourself a reality check. Like, oh, maybe, maybe it's not a good idea to be racist, or (laughs) maybe it's not a good idea to kill people for money uh you know what i mean like yeah i don't know yeah so i wanted to run through a couple of funny scenes and then a a little bit of interesting trivia that i was able to find for sure and we already went through a couple of the trivia um earlier but well number one i think my favorite character even though she's like totally messed up is emily i think i love her the most she's really funny to me Every scene with Emily in it is so good. I love her pep talk. Like She goes, she accidentally kills, she shoots the maid in the face. Everyone leaves. Oh, I need to go back to get my gun. She runs back. She gives herself, or she snorts a bunch of cocaine, gives herself, a, <laughs> gives herself a pep talk. It's like, you got this. Woo. And then like runs off with the gun. It's like, man, you are so messed up, dude. Yes.
1: Every scene, I literally had that written down like, Every scene with Emily is so iconic because she is just so chaotic.
0: <laughs> it is. It's just a. It's just like a. Uh, just like a, a train wreck, just constantly happening, and I can't look away. It's so good. It's so funny. Um, and then I also I love I love when she accidentally shoots the person in the in the in the mouth uh, with the with the cross. It's so gory, dude. And uh, with the crossbow, why does this keep happening to me? And then and then I love. Tony's reaction is like, oh.
1: <laughs> well, and then I love, I love Helene's reaction too, where she's like, "We must," and then she keeps on getting interrupted by the like, yeah. like gargling on her own blood, and then she finally just decapitates her, and
0: she's like, "We must kill the bride by dawn." Yeah. But like, that whole scene was so funny. No, it's, this, yeah, this this movie has quite a few funny funny moments um I, oh also i really i really like the hide and seek song it was so creepy man it's so good so good yeah though. i think oh i can't i should have written it down they had a different song for, and when they were actually filming the movie as a stand-in and then they ended up going with this hide and seek song yeah and i love that the song comes on at the
1: end of the movie when the tables get turned i love that it's like such yeah.
0: Uh oh, it's such a good like addition. And that's that's where I'm like, oh, maybe Labelle wanted this to happen. Maybe he wanted to kill the family yes. because he does that and he's like, yeah, like hide and seek for you guys now. I think Labelle I don't think he cares who dies as long
1: as there's chaos. He's cool with it.
0: Yeah. For sure. Um Oh yeah, this is this is funny. I can't remember Oh yeah, so Daniel Daniel poisons everyone, right? At that that ritual. And for some reason that I really, I laughed out loud at this moment um, when uh, Tony goes and swings at Daniel, and Daniel dodges. <laughs> but the way he dodges is like he literally moves in an, like an inch, and that's it. <laughs> it's like a drug guy trying to punch someone or something. He just like, Ugh. and and the look on Daniel's face is like it didn't even phase him. Like he already knew he was gonna try to punch him, and he just kind of has this dead face and moves away. Yes.
1: It's so That scene was great. That scene's great. I love the scene when Fitch is on the toilet, Googling how to use a crossbow. And I think, too, I don't know if you saw this, but the experts in the YouTube video are the yeah. writers, too, which I think is so funny. But I just love how he's, like, texting and on his phone during all. Like, again, this goes back to the idea I was telling you about of, like, how mundane this evilness is. Because we've all... Been on the toilet on our phones before, oh, every you know, day. like. But he's literally on the toilet googling how to use a crossbow so that he can kill someone. Like, I just love <laughs> this, like, overlap of this super evil experience with just like this really mundane thing, like using the bathroom. I just, it's so good. Yeah,
0: no, yeah. So, so many good, f- funny moments of this movie. I guess I did kind of want to highlight a couple of uh, subtle details that I noticed as well, like. Oh, when when Grace gets the card in the first place, for some reason I just thought it was really impressive that they that someone told her like, oh, put your hand over the card slot when it opens, because it really shows that she's never seen this box before. And and when the card when the card slot opens, like her hands kind of blocking it in a way, I just thought that that was really impressive. I'm like, oh, someone like noticed that and it's like, oh, put your hand over the thing so you really don't know what's going on with this box. So I thought that that was really impressive. One of the
1: scenes. The, one of the scenes I thought was so funny was when Grace was running across the lawn and oh. Charity is outside and she has the crossbow <laughs> and she sees her and, and it's so dramatic and she aims it and she's like I got you yeah. bitch and then she shoots it and she totally it's misses it's like by like a half a mile it's- <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny because it's like you have this huge buildup of you think that this thing's gonna happen, and Charity's so confident, yeah. and then just a complete. Dad. Oh, it's so good. So funny! It's
0: great. And then and then she just casually walks in and tells Stevens like <laughs> she's out in the lawn, like heading towards the north gate. I'm gonna round everyone else up. Yes, I just love it because like. Again, this family does not know what they're doing, you know?
1: Like they're just so normal. Like who no one yeah. knows how to shoot a crossbow, <laughs> yeah. but like they're doing these like atrocious acts. It's so funny. Yeah.
0: Why? Yeah. I don't even, why would they not have Oh, I guess it's tradition or whatever that they're going with these old uh weapons. It's ridiculous. Also, I thought it was pretty cool that they had that little dream sequence in the car, you know, when she she gets caught captured by Stevens and then um and then it kind of cuts to like her and Alex and Alex like, Oh, you're safe, I got you. And then she looks over and he's got the mask on, the the old traditional mask yeah. from the eighties, apparently. It was the eighties. Um that's why we had these weird <laughs> creepy masks. But that that was a good foreshadowing that like Alex is gonna betray you, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Super interesting. And then I do love I I love actually when Becky lunges at Grace. And if you look at her face, like she looks so conflicted. I thought that it was just really impressive that they kept that like that that whole th- um that whole feeling of her being conflicted and just really not wanting to kill Grace really held true even to the end then and, and she just she looked really sad about it and like like I really don't want to kill you but I have to protect my family it was like the perfect face I thought that was awesome and then also when uh I don't know who picks up the box off of the ground but you see you see Becky's hair and like like little bits of skull. Yeah, it's so gross, but that was a good little subtle detail. Yeah. I yeah, I think that's all the subtle details. But so a little bit of trivia for this movie. This this house that they actually shot in was the same house used in Billy Madison. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I saw that. It's like some museum in Canada, right? Yeah, and that was something in the film like apparently they couldn't touch like half of the things in it cuz it needed to be preserved. I wonder why they even shot in there in the first place. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty cool house. So. Yeah, that's true, but it's just i I bet that that was kind of a pain to to deal with i don't I don't know, yeah, oh, also this was hilarious, uh so Samara weaving, who plays grace, did not know how to drive, and she thought that the on star button was the ignition, apparently. <laughs> And so they had to tell her where the ignition was. Isn't that so funny? How do you not know? I think she's Australian.
1: Oh, true. I don't know if she's like from a big city and just never learned to drive, but I saw that too, that she
0: had to be taught to look like she knew how to drive. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. How do you not see a movie and know where the whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Like, I can understand not being able to drive. Like, these American cars are so different. What? <laughs> sure. The only difference in any car is whether the steering wheel's on the left or right, I feel like. Or or I guess if it's stick. Like, I can understand if you don't know how to drive stick, but... That's so funny. But the ignition's a pretty common... Whatever. It's awesome. And then there's that... Oh, 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 wait. Yeah. Going back to what we were talking about at the end, like, I wonder what happened to Grace. I was... That was a big question of mine, like... Would she not be immediately charged for, like, murder because there's this? she has blood all over her. The entire family's dead. <laughs> the house is burnt down, and all she says at the end is in-laws. I'm sure the cop wrote that up, and it's like, let's take her in. <laughs> we solved it. The case is closed. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like I'm sure they left that open ended because why not? Like why not have people speculate? I I feel too, especially like once they whip out the robes and they're worshiping Satan. Like
1: at that point in the movie, you're just like, okay, this is going to become incredibly absurd. And so I just think that they went so overboard with all of the blood and the fire, and I just it makes it so much more entertaining to me. Just like they really lean into the like Satan worshiping component of it, and it's so good.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I think one of the directors or something was just like. Uh, my, or my I think Samara Weaving actually herself says uh, my guess is she starts tracking down other families whose fortunes whose fortunes are built on the same deadly deals and then ends their lineages too. <laughs> that's a little. I'd necessary. be there for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they had the sequels,
1: she just like reverse Black Widows and like marries into the family Ugh. and then <laughs> Every draws time. the hide and
0: seek and just kills everyone. Dude, that's awesome. Um, uh no never mind that one's not really worth talking about okay i think that's all the trivia that i wanted to mention unless you had anything else nope i'm 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 glad that it sounds like
1: you enjoyed it so it was good That makes me happy
0: yeah it was a good watch i don't know if i'll ever watch it again who knows but (laughs) but it was a it was a again like i said exceptional seven out of ten film
1: i'll take it i'll take it
0: perfect seven out of ten um in every sense I, i like the only thing that that makes it definitely a 7 out of 10 for me is just how ridiculous it is, which is fine. Yeah. Like, you can love it. It's clearly absurd, right? Absurd. And also, I think the cinematography was, like, it was okay. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't, like, some crazy artistic shots, but how could you with this type of film anyway? So, again, like, everything was perfectly executed for what their vision was, I believe. Yeah. They knew what they wanted to be, and they achieved it. And Emily is a brilliant character. I love her. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is... Ready or not, um, made in 2019, a movie worth watching every single year for Halloween. Um, and you could, apparently it's okay to say that you've watched it for every single year, even though you've only seen it once before. Um, now since I, I basically chose like the first two films, like technically, I don't know, like you gave me a list for the first film, but I basically chose it. So I wanted Big T to choose the next film as well. And, um, what big t chose is pan's labyrinth the 2006 film by Guillermo del Toro this is something that we discussed when we were talking about this film that we didn't realize until after we already recorded the iron giant episode um i should probably we should probably let you know that the movie is rated r <laughs> so if you want to watch the film along with us but you have a hard you know no on rated r films then just be aware of that or if you're kind of okay depending on what types of things are shown go ahead and look up the like the the parents guide over on imdb.com that way you can get an idea of why it's rated r and make the decision for yourself of whether or not you want to watch it there's plenty of people that say they don't want to watch rated r movies but they're okay watching terrible tv shows so (laughs) yeah (laughs) so you make that decision for yourself
1: It is available on Netflix. Um, It is in Spanish, though. So you will need to sub it or dub it, like we talked about earlier. But I've heard it's really great. Um, It was Metacritic's best-reviewed film of the early 2000s. And it actually received a 22-minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. And apparently it won and, um, and was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards as well. So Austin and I have not seen it, but... I've heard great things about it, um, and I am excited to get some Spanish practice in and talk about it next month as well.
0: I'm I'm actually, yeah, the fact that neither one of us has seen it it really gets me excited. Plus, this is kind of a, you know how we discussed how uh, Tim Burton really has a very Specific look and aesthetic to his films. I feel like that's the exact same case with Guillermo. Uh, I can't say his first name. Guillermo del Toro. Definitely, all of his films have a very similar feel to them. I think he directed like the Hellboy films as well, and some of the characters in there look just like some of the like they were ripped out of Pan's Labyrinth um, from from the clips that I've ever seen throughout the years of that film. So again, really excited about that one. Um, it should be a pretty good topic of discussion so if you guys want to watch that film before we record the next episode that episode will go up on oh that's right this episode's going up on halloween halloween so the pan's labyrinth episode will go up december 6th and that was kind of a topic of discussion between big t and i as well we weren't entirely sure whether or not we should kind of make sure that we pick films that are appropriate for the month that it's in but since we only do this monthly I feel like it doesn't quite make sense to like oh every Halloween we have to pick a Halloween or every October we have to pick a Halloween one and um, I guess there's probably not really any Thanksgiving films but <laughs> Christmas films and all the Hallmark movies yeah exactly oh 4th of July we gotta pick uh, <laughs> live Live free or die hard or I don't even freaking know Independence, Independence Day. Day yeah there you go that's a ooh, we should cover that film though but um, anyway, so it's not going to be a very Christmas-themed episode, but that's okay, I think. But again... I'll
1: slip a Santa reference in there.
0: Okay, go for it. Um, and uh, yeah, again, Pan's Labyrinth, It will. that episode will be on December 6th. If you guys want to write into the show, you can write into layersoffilmpod at com. Try to get it in a week before the episode goes up, at least, <laughs> at the latest, because we usually... F- record this episode record each episode about a week before the episode goes out so um get your questions in if you want to and yeah there's that thanks again for listening happy halloween and happy halloween goodbye everybody